Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. Although in this episode, it'll be more physics-related. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 141 for the second half of September 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the plausibility and the physics of the A equals 440 hertz conspiracy. For this episode, the claim is something completely different from what I've been talking about for, well, really, the past few months or even years, really any other episode that I've done. I'm going to be talking about the conspiracy idea that various persons or groups in the early 1900s decided to change the definition of the musical note A4 to one that produces angst, destroys the body's natural healing or energy or harmony, and various other nefarious goals or reasons or purposes. There are, well, there are lots of ways that I could actually go about addressing this claim in this episode, looking into the history of it, whether it's true, uh, you know, stuff like that. The problem with that kind of approach is that it's been done before. I'm also not really a historian. In fact, I'm going to be relying on one of the most popular websites in the world for that portion of this episode. So instead, I thought that I would take an approach that I haven't really seen taken before, which is to address this claim from a physics and a physical standpoint rather than a historic one. In other words, instead of addressing whether the conspiracy itself has any roots or basis in historic reality, which it doesn't, I'm going to ignore that other than a very brief history of the claim, and instead I'm going to focus on whether this could work for any nefarious or even beneficial purpose. Before getting into that, since I'm going to be delving into some physics that I very, very rarely do, and even music theory that I've I think I've only done in one episode about quantum stuff, uh, I need to give some definitions. First up is the second. When you think about it, how do you define a second? I mean, one second of time. From what I can find, one of the earliest true uses or even codification of the second was one of practicality for mechanical clocks in the mid-1500s. These were clocks driven by a spring and a ratchet system, and based on the length and weight of a pendulum, it would move forward one unit of time. What that unit is, is, well, it's the second. Prior civilizations had already introduced the idea of dividing the day into 24 hours and hours into 60 minutes, and the Babylonians even had a concept of divisions of 1 60th down to the modern equivalent of 2 microseconds, not that they could actually measure those. From this, for practical purposes, 1 60th of one minute was a good division that worked with the mechanics of clocks and practical purposes or the practical reality of building a pendulum. As science progressed, we needed to measure time more accurately, and with advancements in astronomy, in 1956, the second was defined as 1... 31556925.9747 of the tropical year starting January at 12 o'clock in the year 1900. This definition was ratified four years later in 1960 at a conference which also established the International System of Units, not to be confused with Unit from Doctor Who. Several years later, atomic clocks were developed, and in 1967, the second was defined as the time it took for 
9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. Now, it's not important that you understand it. It's important that you understand that there are definitions of a second that have progressed. Unfortunately, we needed to progress even more. Gravitational time dilation meant that, well, pretty quickly, no atomic clock agreed with another because of differences in elevation. In other words, distance from Earth's core. This is the same reason why I weigh a fraction of a gram less here in Colorado than I will when this episode goes out and I'm in New York. In reaction to that, a uniform standard was made, such that the definition referred to that many periods, and I'm not going to say again, of when the clock was at sea level. In 1997, it was revised again to specify that this was when the atom is at absolute zero, which isn't actually physically possible, at least not yet. We can get really, really close, but not quite there yet. So, why do we care about this? One reason is, well, I kind of thought it was interesting. But another reason is that the whole point of this conspiracy is that it's about the definition of a musical pitch, A4. And pitch is measured in the unit hertz. And the definition of hertz is per second. So if I move my hand back and forth once per second, that is 1 hertz. If I watch a movie in a theater, the normal rate is 24 frames per second, or 24 frames hertz. Well, we usually just say 24 hertz or 24 frames. The human hearing range is ideally around 20 to 20,000 hertz, meaning that your ear, ideally, can pick up sound waves that are moving 20 to 20,000 times per second. This means already... At this point, six minutes into the episode, that if we have continuously been revising the definition of what one second actually is, then unless this conspiracy says that everything was set up in the last few decades, we can dismiss it out of hand. Because before the 1950s, everyone's second varied by, well, a non-trivial amount when we're talking about measuring hundreds of hertz and being off by fractions of a hertz. This brings us to the definition of A. Well, more specifically, A4. For those who are musically inclined, bear with me while I go over this for those who are not. In Western music, one can look to the now standard 88-key piano to understand this. One of the fundamentals of pitch and music is the octave, so-called in Western music because there are eight notes that span each octave, hence oct meaning eight. From one octave to the next, the frequency doubles. So if I play one note, and it has a frequency of uh, arbitrarily 200 hertz, and I go up one octave, it's 400 hertz. Another octave, it's 800 hertz. Just like this progression. That was five octaves, starting at 100 hertz and going to 1600 hertz. And all of you, unless you have a hearing impairment, should have been able to hear that. If it sounded a bit fake, there is a reason for that, and I'll get into it in a bit. Anyway, so I've defined the octave for you. So where does A4 come from? An octave is eight pitches, and conveniently, they're just alphabetical. A through G, and then A again. For some reason that I didn't really care enough to look up, the middle of the piano is the note C, 
possibly because the key of C going from one C to the next for a major scale requires no sharps or flats, which are a way to modify the pitch a half pitch up or down. I just introduced a lot of new terms. If you're interested and don't know what they are, look them up. Uh, they're not important to this discussion, so moving on. In the middle of the modern-day Western piano is C. It is the fourth C on the modern piano. Five notes above it is A. A4, because, well, it's the A after C4. It's this seemingly innocuous note that is the subject of the conspiracy. A4 is the conspiracy note because the whole basis for music is one pitch relative to another, and everything about music is defined as such, like one octave to the next is double or half the frequency of the other, and the eight notes between it are geometric fractions of it. And to those who know music, yes, I realize there are actually 12 half notes from one octave to the next, but let's move on, that's not important for this discussion. So... If you define the fourth A on the piano to be a certain frequency, then everything is tuned relative to that note, such that the relative pitches will be correct. So if A4 is 440 hertz, A5 is 880 hertz, A3 is 220 hertz, and then various notes in between. So with all of those definitions out there, nice out in the open, and nine and a half minutes of the episode already gone by, Hopefully now, everyone has at least the basics of the physics and the music theory to understand this episode, so let's at least very briefly address the conspiracy on its face. I've heard a lot of different, well, perturbations on the basic theme or basic idea of the conspiracy, but the general gist of the conspiracy perhaps can be summarized by the beginning of the 440 hertz music, conspiracy to detune us from natural 432 hertz harmonics from the Why Don't You Try This website. To quote uh, about six paragraphs worth, Most music worldwide has been tuned to 440 hertz since the International Standards Organization, ISO, endorsed it in 1953. The recent discoveries of the vibratory, oscillatory nature of the universe indicate that this contemporary international concert pitch standard may generate an unhealthy effect or antisocial behavior in the consciousness of human beings. A equals 432 hertz, known as Verdi's A, is an alternative tuning that is mathematically consistent with the universe. Music based on 432 hertz transmits beneficial healing energy because it is a pure tone of math functional to nature. There is a theory that the change from 432 hertz to 440 hertz was dictated by Nazi propaganda minister Josef Goebbels. He used it to make people think and feel a certain manner and to make them a prisoner of a certain consciousness. Then, around 1940, the United States introduced 440 hertz worldwide, and finally in 1953, it became the ISO 16 standard. 440 hertz is the unnatural standard tuning frequency, removed from the symmetry of sacred vibrations and overtones that has declared war on the subconscious mind of Western man. In a paper entitled, Musical Cult Control, Dr. Leonard Horowitz writes, quote, 
The music industry features this imposed frequency that is hurting populations into greater aggression, psychosocial agitation, and emotional distress predisposing people to physical illness." End quote. You just have to go out in the street and take a look around. What do you see? School kids, young adults on their way to work, a woman pushing her baby in a pram, a man walking his dog, and what do they have in common? iPods or MP3 players? Ingenious, isn't it? The powers that be are successfully lowering the vibrations of not only the young generation, but the rest of us as well. These destructive frequencies entrain the thoughts towards disruption, disharmony, and disunity. Additionally, they also stimulate the controlling organ of the body, the brain, into disharmonious resonance, which ultimately creates disease and war. Phew. Alright, uh, first off, I'd like to see a dog wearing an iPod. Uh, that, would be, that would be interesting. But that kind of gives you the basic idea. To anyone who's not embedded in New Age thinking, I'm kind of hoping that you're not nodding along with that text in agreement. There are, well, there are so many things that I could talk about with it, but let's draw back and remember that the idea here is that music was tuned prior to the Nazis, where A was 432 hertz, and after the Nazis it was tuned so A4 was 440 hertz, because of stuff. I'd point out that the definition of A440 Hz was set as an ISO standard in 1955, according to Wikipedia, and the ISO, not 1953, but either way, that's at least a full year before we had a set definition defined by astronomers of one second that everyone in the industrialized world would use. Before that, again, when this was sort of set up, well, Hertz was a little bit different depending on where you went and who was doing what. But there's more. The article is factually wrong in other ways. Prior to the 1800s, there was no standard musical pitch for tuning. Everyone kind of did what they wanted, not only in Western music, but in other musical cultures. With the invention of the tuning fork in 1711, there was some standardization, but it still varied depending on manufacturer and who wanted what. Over centuries, the range was over 50 hertz of what A4 was, anywhere from about 400 to about 450. Over time, there was pitch inflation as well, meaning that people were tuning slightly higher than the last person to make the music sound brighter and more lively. This becomes an actual problem, though, for practical reasons. If, for example, I have a piece of sheet music written in a very very obnoxious singer key like, say, A-sharp major. I might be able to sing it when it's initially written, but a year later, if the pitch that the piano has given me has crept up, it may now be out of my vocal range. And it's not just an issue for vocalists. Having played woodwind instruments for over a decade, it becomes harder to get high notes out than low notes because, well, to get to the basics of the physics, you have to force air through the instrument to get it to vibrate faster and faster and faster, and that gets a lot harder. If I, for example, were to buy a clarinet in 1960, and it's tuned so that A equals 400 hertz, I might be able to get over the break to the next octave perfectly fine. If I buy a clarinet in, say, 1970, and it's tuned so that A equals 450 hertz, well, that's not the case anymore. It's going to be harder to actually get these higher notes that I was able to play perfectly fine before. 
For string instruments, it's an issue not necessarily of being able to play a higher pitch, but rather it's the practical reason of your strings breaking. To get the strings to vibrate faster, you have to pull them tighter. This is very easily demonstrated by a cheapo rubber band. If you hold it loosely and you strike it or pluck it, it's going to produce a low tone. If you were to pull it tighter and strike it or pluck it, the pitch is going to increase. If you pull it even tighter, it's going to break. And so for all of those reasons and more, standardization was desired. In France, a law was passed in 1959 defining A4 as 435 hertz. Notice, that's well before the Nazis, and it's not 432. Alternatively, OCD scientists like myself might prefer that middle C is set to 456 hertz, which is 2 to the 8th power. That means that A4 is going to be 430.54 hertz. That might be why in the article that I just read, not article, the uh, diatribe that I just read, they talked about natural frequencies and geometric properties and blah, 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 for A being equal to 432 hertz. It was really based on this mathematical idea that middle C is set to 2 to the 8th power, so that A is 430.54. Well, people didn't like that, so they rounded up a teeny bit and set A equal to 432. So even going off of the idea that, well, if you set middle C to 256 hertz, then you're going to get something that's nice and harmonic and at one with the universe or whatever new age thing you want to say, that's still not the case if A is equal to 432 hertz. A has to be set to 430.54 and then a lot of other decimal points. Moving on, in the 1800s, the British, hating the French, selected A4 to not be 435, but set it to be 452, and they revised it again in 1896 to be 439, because, well, 452 is a little bit high for most people. A year before, at the Queen's Hall in London, the diapos- diapason, We'll say diapason. The diapason normal was established where everything was tuned to the organ having A4 set to 439 hertz when the temperature was 59 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 degrees centigrade. Or 435.5 hertz, which was 3.5 hertz lower, if the hall was heated. Because that's another thing to keep in mind. If your instrument changes temperature, your frequency is going to change. Elsewhere in Europe, it would still be over a century before the Nazis rose to power in Germany that the Stuttgart Conference of 1834 recommended that A4 be set to 440 hertz. However, this wasn't adopted very widely until it was an international conference that again recommended it in 1939, and hence the whole Nazi alleged connection. But that doesn't mean that everybody uses it. As an extreme example, I was in marching band, concert band, orchestra, and the pit orchestra while in grade school. When we tuned, it was usually to either the first chair in our section for concert band, which was ultimately based on the first chair oboist, or in orchestra, it was the first chair violinist who tuned the strings, and the first chair flute tuned to the first chair violinist, and then these woodwinds all tuned to the first chair flute. 
in marching band, we generally used a tuner because it was faster. And in the pit orchestra, it was uh, kind of random up to us to do on our own. I can guarantee you that we were all over the place. In fact, I have some of my old high school band recordings and uh, they, they are painful to listen to. Not because the tuning was set so that A equals 432 hertz, but because, say, my A was set to 440, the person next to me was 443, and the piccolo was 470, and the next piccolo was 400, and then the, I don't know, it was all over the place. Uh, anyway, uh, despite all of that painful tuning, the only time anyone ever collapsed was during the Disney Magic Music Days when we were, well, we were kind of dressed in five layers of cotton, and it was hot and humid in Orlando, Florida. Um, well, I guess another collapse was the Great Flute Collision of 1997, but we don't need to get into that. More professionally, even though A4 is 440 hertz and it's the only official standard, many Western orchestras throughout the world will still use something different. In the USA, the New York Philharmonic and the Boston Symphony Orchestra use 442 hertz. Most modern symphony orchestras in continental Europe use 443. The Berliner Philharmoniker has, in the recent past, used 445 hertz. Meanwhile, many modern groups that play forms of music called blues or even the rocks and or roll will tune lower. It's a practical reason that gets to two things that I've mentioned earlier. First, pitch inflation causes music to sound brighter. And if you're going to play depressing blues music or satanic rock and roll, then you often want to be a bit more depressing, so you're going to lower the pitch. On a slightly more serious note, the other reason is that lowering your tuning pitch is going to loosen string instruments' strings, which lets the strings literally move more. It lets them be slacker, and it lets you do something called improve the sustain. I'm not being a string instrument player, I'm just going to imagine in my head what that means and let the couple of you who do know what this is hopefully nod your head in agreement. But vibrating strings reminds me that I promised something that I would get to a while back. Why that octave that I played for you sounded artificial when I went from 100 hertz to 1600 hertz. The reason is that it was pure. It was a single individual frequency with absolutely nothing else going on. That's pretty much impossible to do, except by artificial means. Almost every instrument has what are called harmonics, partials, and overtones, with some flutes and ocarinas being the only exceptions that I could find. Those are other frequencies that are produced whenever the one that you want is actually made. These are all produced because the instrument itself cannot produce a perfect, individual, single frequency. Some of the energy is going to go into the next octave, and some will go into other pitches, some will interfere with each other, and produce all sorts of colorful things that, when we hear, we recognize that as a real instrument, as opposed to something that was produced by artificial means. That's also what sort of allows you to differentiate between different instruments. It's what lets you be able to tell that, say, that's a clarinet, that's an oboe, that's an English horn, that's a French horn, that's a violin. It's all of these different tones and overtones all working together that give you that broader flavor of what's going on. If we want to mix sensory perceptions, we can say flavor. But why do they do that? One of the many reasons for this can be thought of, well, by looking at 
some instrument, say, uh, let's, let's take a trumpet, for example. It is, at its very, very most basic level, a pipe. And you vary the length of that pipe in order to get a different pitch. This is like taking, say, a soda bottle or a water bottle or whatever and varying the amount of liquid in it to get a different pitch. It's, in this case, varying the length of a pipe, varying the amount of area you have to vibrate air. It's, it's all the same basic physical thing. If you have a different length, you're going to get a different pitch. But you're not just vibrating the pipe length. You're also vibrating the keys. You're vibrating the support structure. You're vibrating the mouthpiece. You, yourself, are vibrating as you play it. I remember when I played the trumpet, my head would vibrate. It gave me a headache, which is why I didn't play the trumpet very long. All of these different things combine to give you different pitches over top the one that you're intending to play. This is what makes that real instrument sound so different from an artificial one. It's also why if you use a different metal to make the instrument, it can sound a little bit different because of the density of that metal. I remember uh, when I was at marching band competitions, I would see vendors with, say for example, a silver-plated nickel flute, a solid silver flute, a solid silver flute with a gold-plated mouthpiece, a solid gold mouthpiece, a solid gold head joint, and then all the way up to a solid gold flute. All of those would sound a little bit different because of the different density of the metal and all of those different overtones and harmonics and partials all working together. And it's, well, it's what makes it, I think, a little bit more interesting. Um, Another way to think about this is to look at string instruments. When you have one string vibrate, It's physically moving, which is physically moving the air, and that air physically touches the strings next to it, causing them to vibrate at their own frequency. While this might be less obvious in more tightly strung instruments, like a a viola or something, if you get a chance, go to an open piano and play some low notes. You'll see that when you press one key, just one, it causes a hammer to strike anywhere from one to a few springs or strings, depending on exactly how that piano was made. If you look closely, the strings or springs next to it, or them, that were not struck by the hammer are also going to vibrate a little bit. This is emphasized more when you press the pedal that raises all the pads and suppresses this extra vibration. Uh, So if you press that pedal and the pads raise, that would normally dampen that, press the key, the low key, you will see a lot of other strings vibrate that were not struck. If you're lucky enough and you can go and find a Bosendorfer piano which has extra keys at the low end, use that because then the effect will be even more pronounced. But I'm kind of digressing here. The point of that digression was really to get back to musical standards, official or unofficial, and whether the A4 tuning to 440 Hz affecting the body in some way even makes any sense whatsoever. If nothing else, throughout this shorter, I thought it was going to be shorter when I wrote it, uh, throughout this median-length episode, I wanted you to take home the idea that 440 hertz as a standard, as the pitch that's going to affect you in some Nazi-induced bad way, doesn't make sense historically, doesn't make sense practically speaking, and doesn't make sense in how instruments really work, or, you know, the physics, basically. 
With all of that in mind, I really don't even need to get into the idea that the way the conspiracy people say this affects you is because your body vibrates at a certain frequency and 440 hertz disrupts it. I don't have to get into the fact that the human body is full of a huge number of different molecules and tissues in all sorts of different arrangements and of different sizes. So a single vibration that your body would vibrate at doesn't make any sense to begin with. I don't have to get into the fact that even if I did, you know, say, take a drink of water, or if I excrete waste, I now have changed at how at least a couple of my organs would vibrate. I also don't have to get into the fact that the vibration is fundamentally also based on the length of an object. So even if you tuned something to make me somehow vibrate in a bad way, I'd be the only one affected that way unless someone else was exactly identical to me also, just in size and shape and density, not only on the outside, but the way everything is sized and arranged on the inside. I also don't have to get into the fact that fat tissue and air pockets and blood vessels would tend to dampen any vibration. People you know, kind of make a good sound barrier. And since I didn't get into any of that, uh, I also don't really have to get into the fact that this only applies to Western music. I find it interesting how ethnocentric this particular conspiracy is, considering that the majority of the world doesn't primarily listen to Western music, and therefore would never be affected by this conspiracy idea, even if it were true. And so, with all that said, and not said, but in actuality said, that's about all I have on this topic. It doesn't make sense historically. It doesn't make sense anatomically. It doesn't make sense physically. And it's not even applicable to how music is played anyway. So it's just wrong. Oh yeah, and, and somehow I got almost a half hour into this episode without actually playing those pitches for you. Here's one. And here's the other. Did you hear a difference between those two? Think about it, and we'll get to it after the break. The first one that I played was 440 hertz. The second one that I played was 432 hertz. I generated those pitches in Audacity, and I've been told that I have a pretty good ear, but I couldn't tell the difference. I'm actually interested in this. Uh, please email in, comment on the blog, tweet me at pseudoastro or at drastrostew, or write on Facebook and let me know if you could tell the difference and knew which was which. So even if you could tell that there was a tiny difference but weren't sure which was which, that doesn't count. Um, let's put it as eh, October 10th, um, and then I'll report on the results. So with that said, let's get to the logical fallacy segment. The logical fallacy of this episode was the naturalistic fallacy, or the appeal to nature, one that I haven't talked about before. This logical fallacy is one that you most often see in things like anti-GMO rhetoric, where people will say that the natural way is better, therefore GMOs are bad because they were engineered in a lab. Besides many other ways to refute this, my most common go-to method is to respond with, bee stings, poison ivy, and arsenic are also all natural. Have fun!
In this episode, the appeal to nature went something along the lines of 432 hertz is the natural vibration of the body, or the universe. Therefore, it's good and 440 hertz is bad. Besides just being wrong, for reasons I explained a few minutes ago, this is the quintessential naturalistic fallacy. This is a subform of the vagueness fallacy as well as a subform of the loaded words fallacy. So as not to repeat myself in later episodes and because I need to leave for New York in eight hours and have yet to do laundry or pack or sleep, I'm going to leave those to later episodes when they arise. I do want to discuss one piece of feedback in this episode, although it's, it's actually more of a thank you to listener Helena from the UK based on the stamps on the postcard. She did send me a postcard from the Doctor Who experience, as well as a message about liking the episode where I discussed why Iapetus has such large brightness differences, science versus what Richard Hoagland and others think. I also want to thank David, Barbara, Lefteris, Amy, Clifford, and the Credible She-Hulk for recent likes to the podcast website, or page, on Facebook. And for recent reviews on the iTunes stores, I want to thank iPhone user, RJ Denver 1 and Bill7814 in the US, as well as Green Shirt in Canada, for writing since episode 139. If you're in another country store and have submitted a review and I didn't mention you, uh, please let me know from whence you hail so I can keep track. And with that said, over and out. That wraps up this topic for the 141st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, and, or, you can tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then tell friends, family, and two random people you'll never meet in real life, and I forgot to update this last sentence with iTunes or Stitcher. There are no reviews on Stitcher yet. Thanks. <laughs>